Welcome to the Maranatha Baptist Church Podcast. It is our prayer that this class from our Equip Ministry will be a blessing to you and will grow your love for Jesus Christ. We would encourage you to use it only as a supplement to your regular intake of God's Word in your local church. If you need help connecting with a local church, please reach out to us on our website, mbcgrimes.org. So um, last week we were talking about early Christian living and early Christian worship. Kind of interested in your feedback. I, this could be just be me. I kind of felt like as a teacher, though, when we were slogging our way through response to early heresies, that, um, I mean, did you enjoy that? I kind of felt like, okay, you did? All right, because sometimes we get into deeper theology stuff, I kind of feel like sometimes the eyes begin to glaze and you're kind of like zoning off on me. And we talked about more like practical stuff, like Christian living, Christian worship, kind of perk up again, like you see immediately the... the uh, how that applies to today in, in talking about like Marcionism or Gnosticism, since we don't face those people on everyday level, may not immediately recognize uh, the importance of that per se. But in talking about early Christian living, to kind of wrap up last times, this is last time's handout, um, a couple things to stress there. They, they stress themselves as aliens, as sojourners, as pilgrims. Any books of the Bible that you can think of that would stress being an alien or a pilgrim or a sojourner or an exile? It already appears in the New Testament already, even before second century literature. First Peter chapter 1, good. And then Hebrews chapters 11 and 12 kind of stresses that as well. And then last week I read you a paragraph from the Epistle of Diognetus, chapter 5, about how Christians are in the world, but they're not like everyone else in mundane ways. They're like everyone else. They have the same language, speak the same language, eat the same food, um, have similar customs, but in other ways, and hopefully in their ethics and morality, they're quite different. Um, Another thing about Christian living, early Christian living, is that they tended to highlight facets of simplicity and uh, even modesty. Um, Modesty don't collapse like modern discussions of modesty into like first century discussions in that it's quite different, partly because um, the average poor lower class person didn't have a whole closet for, full of clothing like I would. Like I go home, right, and I, what do I pick from? And I have all these different outfits. Some of them only have like two outfits, the one you're wearing and the one that's in the wash type thing. So they don't have a lot of options there. So tied with it is actually, unlike us, there's probably a strong sense of simplicity as well uh, when it comes to things like dress. And you see that in the New Testament, right? Pastoral epistles, uh, the Petrine, by that I mean Peter, epistles, it talks about, for example, let not women's beauty be that of uh, braided hair and gold jewelry and beautiful clothing. Um, in, in some cases, it actually talks about clothing. So especially in that case, it's pretty clear what they're getting at is that shouldn't be the focus of beauty because everyone should be wearing clothing, right? So, uh, but the, the focus isn't the rich jewelry, the braided hair, and uh, the beautiful clothing. And you have in James chapter, uh, chapter is it four, which chapter does the poor man come into the assembly? Chapter three. Chapter three. So chapter three before the tongue, the importance of the tongues and lips then. Um, it talks about if a poor man comes to your assembly and then there comes in a, a man in rich raiment and you say the one sit here in a footstool, you say the other one, um, you know, stand here or sit here in the place of blessing, that you're treating them differently. And so there's issues of simplicity uh, tied to dress. 
And that could cut a couple of different ways uh, when you think of like what simplicity looks like with clothing, uh, male, female clothing, etc. Um, when you get to later post New Testament stuff, they get some fascinating discussions. So like Clement of Alexandria talks about if God really wanted us to have purple and blue and red clothing, he would have given us sheep that were red and purple and blue. And so clearly he just wants to have more drab colors like tan and brown and cream color, because that's the wool he gave us. So they may be over-arguing their case. I mean, Acts chapter 16 talks about Lydia, the seller of purple, who's a godly woman, and she's dying clothing and, and handing it over and all that. But in general, there's a very strong sense, though, of simplicity, um, contentment with one's own means. That's kind of tied into that. Also helping out the poor, the hungry, the sick, those who are imprisoned, the stranger, clothing the naked, helping those who don't have a place to stay. All that's tied into that. In fact, maybe to kind of wrap up that section, James chapter 1, in this case I'm sure it's the right chapter, the very last verse says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. And what does it go on to say? It has two things. Two... To care for widows and orphans, spoken by one of the leaders of our widows ministry. Thank you. Um, And to keep yourself unspotted from the world. Sometimes in our circles, I think partly because of history, history affects everything, right? That uh, we often talk about keeping yourself unspotted from the world and topics of worldliness. But anytime you get close to talking about helping out widows and orphans, like, oh, that sounds like social stuff. Uh, But really, James chapter 1 stresses both. Um, It is to, of course, be tied to the order of values, including gospel values, so that uh, far more important than simply helping someone out for 40 years of living on this earth is eternity. So it's tied into a value system, but throughout the book of James, it actually has various facets tied to all that, including economics, right? So James, for example, talks about, woe unto you, you rich man, because the cries of the laborers and you have not paid them fairly are crying out to God before you. It talks about, you say that I'm going to go to another city and make money, but you don't bring God in the mix, like if the Lord wills, I'll do that. There's actually really fascinating economic facets to the book of James um, tied to, that could be applicable to uh, those of us who either are employees or employers uh, today. So those are things to consider. That brings us to early Christian worship, and I, we didn't discuss this at all, I don't believe, last week. Is that correct? We didn't get this far? We did get this far? We did not. Okay. We'll, we'll take Jennifer's word for it. We did not get this far. So um, on the first day of the week is when they gathered, and this is clear, little spots in the New Testament. It says in Corinthians, it says, when you bring your money to the treasury on the first day of the week. It talks about in Acts chapter... Um, I think of which text it is. It's in the 20s, I believe. But remember the story of Eutychus, who's up in the upper story window, third story window. It's a late night service. He falls asleep. He falls backwards. He's taken up as dead. But it's the first day of the week. Um, You have it there. And then probably the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1 is probably a reference to Sunday as well. It's not clear in Revelation, but becomes clear when you get to the early 2nd century text. Uh, that they're talking about uh, the first day. They also refer to it as the eighth day. And you're like, well, that's confusing because it's only seven days in a week. It's because the first week it's seven, and then as you have the new week, like the restoration of what God wanted in creation, the eighth day is the first day again. It's like the next Sunday. So they'll sometimes refer to it as the eighth day because the Christ event is the like, center of all of history for early Christians. 
You already see this in the New Testament. Like it's actually the beginning of the last days is already the incarnation of Jesus Christ, who in these last days has appeared to us, etc. And so um, Sunday as a day of worship is kind of like tied into the Christ event of his resurrection in particular for us. Um, some other kind of interesting things is that we know a little bit about what we're church worship services look like for three reasons. One is because they borrowed quite a bit from synagogues. So if you know what a synagogue worship service looked like, you know, oh, it's kind of probably what the earliest Christian worship service looked like. So it would include scripture reading. And the earliest, earliest Christians would be reading from the Old Testament. They wouldn't call it the Old Testament because it's the Bible, right? They don't have the New Testament yet. Um, it would include um, exposition or teaching or preaching from that. So you have, actually, look at Luke chapter 4 as an example of Jesus is in a synagogue, and he reads from Isaiah, and then he expounds it to them. He teaches it to them. You would also have a prayer as a key facet, and then the early Christian services would also have singing. So we know it because it's uh, being adopted from synagogues. In fact, some of the earliest, earliest Christian documents still call the churches synagogues. So the book of James still refers to the assemblies as synagogue or a synagogue, which all the word means is assemble, to come together. So they're still using very Jewish terms in the earliest strata. Also, um, little side, little hints, isn't it? Corinthians talks about when you meet together and one of you has a tongue, one of you has a prophecy, one of you has a song, one of you has an ins- a teaching, an instruction. It's in the context of downplaying what, how the Corinthians were elevating tongues, right? So it's in the midst of that context which he talks about different people come and bring something to the service. And then it goes on to say, but only two or three at a time, uh, two or three per service, one at a time. So it's not like mayhem. And he talks about because God is a God of order, right? He talks about this in chapter 11 and uh, chapters 15 and 16. He also talks in chapter 11 that a, a woman is only to prophesy or to pray if she has her head covered. And so that does imply, of course, by implication, you could infer that if she has her head covered, she can uh, prophesy or uh, pray in the public service. It seems to be the context that's being talked about there. Actually, I have a picture of a catacomb art. To the right, the kind of picture is that. It's called orans. That's, that's a Latin participle that means to pray. And if you can kind of see, her head is covered with, a, it looks almost like a Jewish prayer shawl. If you can kind of see to the right side, you can see two stripes in the white shawl, like two black stripes. She has her hands kind of stretched out like this. Um, the pastoral epistles directly talk about with your hands stretched out. And so there's nothing inherently wrong with uplifting one's hands in worship. Um, of course, you have to have other principles to consider, like not being a distraction to others, etc. But in the early church, uh, we know the texts talk about it, and we know the artwork refers to it as well. From what we can tell, it's probably primarily like this. It's a sense of receiving. It's, uh, I know, you know, wouldn't so much be, um, not to say that's inherently wrong either, but uh, would not be how some think of it today, but more in the sense of reception, of receiving God's grace gifts to us. Something else about, though, another example would be Pliny. So Pliny's a, a pagan governor. He breaks, well, he doesn't break in, but he sends some spies into a Christian worship service. And then he hears back from them what they're doing. Because remember, Christians were accused of what three specific things? Cannibalism, incest, incest and atheism. And so he sends spies in to see this was really happening. And the spies come back and say, nope, not only aren't they doing those bad things, but they're making commitments 
not to do bad stuff, but to, to act in moral ways. And they're singing hymns to Christ as to a God. Now, it's a pagan talking, and a complicated, the Latin language doesn't have articles. So it could be to the God, Christ as to the God, or Christ as to a God. Even if it's meant to be simply a, like small g, God, remember that it's a pagan talking. From his perspective, the way that Christians sing to Jesus is how one would sing to a deity. And so it's, it's talking about Christian worship from an outsider's perspective. It's a fascinating document, talking about what Christians did from an outsider's perspective. The idea of making commitments or vows not to do bad stuff, but to live upright and immoral lives, that's, again, a pagan talking. My guess is probably a bit more God-centered, like you know, lives that please God or uh, lives that are Christ-like, etc., theologically. Uh, there is some question, is it like a daily thing or like a regular thing? I mean, think how we read the church covenant. So we read the church covenant. If you're really listening to what you're saying, there's a lot there that you're promising when you read the church covenant. And, um, or it could be like a baptismal vow. So like a, at baptism, we still talk today about, you know, you're committing yourself to live um, as a follower of Christ and his disciple and that you are saying dead to sin, alive to Christ. It could be that as well. We just don't know fully because we have a very short pagan statement about it. On the music side, uh, from what we know, is all a cappella. In fact, the very first time we have some clear instrumental music is around the year 900. So for the first almost 1,000 years of Christian worship, it was probably um, almost overwhelmingly, but perhaps entirely a cappella, so without any instrumentation whatsoever. Even after 900, this is pretty common. So this may or may not surprise you that in the Reformation, uh, the Reform side, like Calvin, John Calvin people, they were opposed to instruments. The Luther side, like, instruments, it's okay, it's all right. Um, and so, like, J.S. Bach, famous organist, he's a Lutheran, makes sense. The Calvinists were opposed to instruments. And it's, it's fascinating when you read John Calvin and why he says that. He says, well, yeah, I understand the Psalms talk about cymbals and trumpets and all kinds of instrumentation, but that's the Jewish scriptures, and they need that. Uh, but, you know, we're Christians, and so we can just think deep thoughts uh, we don't need to have all that. I don't think it's necessarily the greatest argument, although, ironically, it's a very dispensational-type argument, ironically, of a strong discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, otherwise, I'm trying to think of, like Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle had no instrumentation whatsoever. It was all a cappella. Early Huguenots, French Reform, was all a cappella. So I am not an a cappella-only person. There are denominations like that. Some Church of Christ, Churches of Christ, or a cappella. Uh, some of the Reformed still are. There's a small group here in the U.S. Uh, of a Reformed movement. Um, has anyone ever heard of Rosaria Butterfield? Uh, she's of this group, and they're a cappella only. So at their national conferences, beautiful a cappella, four-part singing without instrumentation. I would say one thing I hope we might learn from that is that there are some people who would say, unless... I have certain instrumentation. I can't see it as worship because I'm not excited. And I think that all of this shows the problem, at, the problem with that form of reasoning. The, the problem with that form of reasoning is it sounds like worship happens to you as if it's a passion, and really worship is an affection. 
that you are to train, we are to train ourselves to concentrate on the truth so that our affections for God are engendered and that we sing, hopefully, emotionally. I mean, we're not supposed to sing dirges like all the time, like, I'm so sad, I'm praising Christ, and this is really boring. So it's not meant to be boring and sad, but it's also a reminder that we, to say that you have to have this to really worship or be excited, you're kind of going against swaths of church history and saying, I couldn't be planted there and really worship God. So it's an interesting thing to consider. Um, on baptism, so I'm going to merge like 300 years of baptismal history into just a few statements, so take it with a grain of salt. Um, in the book of Acts, I, th- I hope you get the sense that they baptized pretty quickly. Like someone comes to Christ, you know, the Philippian jailer, and that night they're baptized. When you get to the second century, the general trend is to slow it down. So the general trend is to begin to kind of wait uh, for baptism and not necessarily baptize immediately. Rightly or wrongly, um, historians would say that part of the reasoning is because you're moving away from a Jewish context to more more pagan context. And so you want to kind of make sure that there's a level of understanding and instruction. So when you're dealing with a Jewish context, they know there's a God, they know what sin is, right? And so kind of the missing piece of the puzzle is Christ is the sacrifice for sin, you know, not the Jewish system. Put that piece into the system, like, oh, wow, you know, lights come on. And that, that happens a lot. But to be fair, there are even immediate baptisms of Gentiles in the book of Acts. So in any case, we don't know fully why, but there is a general trend. By the time you get to the 300s, often they are keeping people for baptism. Like everyone who wants to be baptized that year in a church, they're being kept like a holding tank um, until Easter. And so Easter is like the baptism day. And they baptize all the baptizans who want to be baptized all at once. Prior to that, there's a catechumenate. Don't be scared of the word. It's just the Greek word to teach, to train. And so they're teaching them. It would be like a new members class would be the, the basic analogy we would have today. So you teach them, and then they're all baptized um, on Easter. Another general trend is that the baptismal ritual becomes a little bit more uh, comp- I know, complex is the word, but a little bit more fuller in its symbolism. It kind of moves beyond the simplicity you see in the New Testament. New Testament, all you basically know is they were baptized, and the Greek word means to submerge, to dip. If you get like to 300s, 400s, they'll start adding things, like they'll anoint you with oil after you come out. And so that's meant to represent the Holy Spirit, and Christ was anointed with the Holy Spirit when he comes out of the water. So then you kind of put oil on them. Uh, sometimes they'll talk about you turn to the east, which is Satan's domain and the symbolism, and you spit and you renounce, all the, you renounce Satan and all his pompous works. It's this kind of this sense of commitment, though, like I'm turning away from Satan, turning toward Christ, and I don't know if anyone would do that today. I don't know if Pastor Lance wants people spitting during their baptismal services. Um, they actually sometimes they will fully exchange attire, strong symbolism there, like put on a white robe to show the newness of life. Tied into that, they'll have women assisting women baptisans and men assisting male baptisans. You can understand why if that's happening. Um, your question may be, what about the mode? And I, I can tell you the first two times that non-immersion is mentioned that we have. So by, by we have, there's a word for that. It's called extant literature. Not extent, but extant, like A-N-T. It means literature we have. 
because there's lots of literature we don't have that was lost, destroyed. In the literature we have, the two exceptions earliest are the Didache. I wrote that on the board last week with the Apostolic Fathers. Early texts, some date as early as some even 50s, some 70s, some 100, some 120. Uh, I tend to think it probably was edited over time and took a while, so let's just say early 200s. But it does mention that it prefers that you get baptized, like immersed, dipped, in living water. So first of all, I was like, what is that? Well, I, I can tell you what it's not. It's not a baptismal tank. So living water would be like a river, like flowing water. So that was their preference. And of course, back then, baptisms weren't happening inside church buildings, so they don't have church buildings. So it's hard to have a baptistry if you don't have a church building. So it would be happening outside. And there still are churches around the world today that do that. Um, in a sense, it's actually a stronger public testimony. Um, if you can imagine, you know, like being in a Muslim culture, let's say, and you're baptized outside and the whole town sees what's happening, uh, that could be a very strong sense of public testimony. So that's what they would prefer. And then it goes on to say, um, if there's not enough water, like you're in a desert dry situation, then pour. It's a very first reference to what we call effusion. Effusion is pouring rather than immersing. The other exception in early Christian literature is Cyprian around the year 250. And he says, if there's a sick person and they can't be baptized because of their health um, and they're like on their deathbed, let's say, that then you could pour again. So this is called clinical baptism, so like clinical, like hospital, medical, and so that you um, are allowed to pour upon them. The problem is that over time, the exceptions overtake the general meaning of baptism, which is to immerse, to dip, etc. And I know we have fascinating discussions at times. I know when Maranath was very young, there was a hospital-bound uh, quadriplegic individual um, who, if I remember correctly, I forget if someone remembers from this era, but uh, they couldn't leave the hospital. They had a voice recognition. Um, I don't know Mrs. Skinner or someone else remembers that. But they used to send, he, he made a profession of faith. They used to send people there to, um, to meet with him and sing with him like once a month just to be with him, but he couldn't be baptized. But kind of the, the general tenor was God understands. He knows your heart. He knows you want to be baptized, um, but that you can't. And, but you're still, we're still here, your brothers and sisters of Christ, and we're still here to you know, fellowship with you, etc. But what they didn't go was the route of like a clinical baptism exception, because then, once again, you see how church history works its way out and how the exceptions become the rules. Um, yeah, any questions about any of that or anything else about early Christian worship that may interest you at all? or the whole idea of the catechumenate or something. While you're thinking, let me add one thing that could be worth considering. Uh, the catechumenate strongly probably taught doctrine, especially as time went on, uh, but it also taught like basically how to live a Christian life. I do wonder if some of our, I'm not you know, pointing fingers at our church per se, but just in general our types of churches, if the new members' classes do enough of like, um, Christian worldview, and that includes lifestyle issues. Because more and more we're going to have post-Christian worldviews. New converts don't just chuck their worldview at the door when they come to Christ. There's a lot of retraining that has to happen, right? And so the idea of bringing ethics as well as doctrine into the um, what we would call the new members training, I think that may be something to consider uh, when we discuss those things. Um,
Something else to consider would be, for example, the idea of currently under many constitutions of Baptist churches, um, people make profession of faith and baptize. They are on paper members, but they're not voting members. They turn 18. And like the morning they turn 18, voila, they're voting members, whether or not they've even thought about it. They're voting members, but sometimes we don't have them do the catechumenate. You can see how in a church, like in generations, if you have all these people grow up in the church and they just kind of automatically became members without studying the Constitution, the covenant, the doctrinal statement, they may actually not know it very well. And that could be a danger for a church long term. And to consider like, hey, you know, they also should be highly trained. If, it's, if the Baptist stress is voluntary membership, they're choosing to be a part of it. But that implies you know what you're getting into. And that means you should know the covenant you should know the doctrinal statement and know what you're joining with. That may be something to consider on a catechumenic kind of a level of how we can learn from the early church. Um, anything else? Any other questions about all? Yes. Based on what you're saying, Paul, is there, is there any uh, validity and maybe some ways or something that we have a scriptural reference to the Oh, that might be a bad, my, my, my guess is, Pastor Lance could talk to this. First of all, we read the covenant once a quarter, and then there's some discussion about looking at various facets of our documents. My guess is they'll be looking into even like scriptural backup, and it might not be a bad thing to share with people, like here are the texts of why we believe what we believe, to kind of help that. Um, I think sometimes we assume that people, whether you know they have grown up in families in the church, or, or they you know, have moved here, et cetera, that they fully know what they're doing. And some, not this time about this church. I'm just talking about churches in general. And sometimes that's not fully the case. So, yeah, I think those would be worth considering. Or like, I don't know, Pastor, it would be Pastor Lance's decision, but um, you know, like a little mini-study about doctrine or theology, et cetera. Those would be worth, or Christian ethics for that matter. But, yes. Yeah, in a way, that's kind of the type of question to consider next week. Although I could say this, that um, I would say that baptism is more cl- was more closely tied to how they thought of conversion than often how we think of it. But it's not absolutely necessary. In that, so the clearest example is you have a catechumenate who ends up being martyred for Christ. And they would say they go to heaven, which it shows baptism isn't nece- absolutely necessary for salvation because they weren't baptized, right? So they've made a profession of faith. They're in our new members class, to use our language. And they would actually talk about um, they're baptized in blood rather than water and things like that. Um, I guess if I'm, trying to be, if I'm trying to be honest with all of you, <laughs> with the primary sources of what's going on, there's also not a strong sense in the early church about, here's this prayer that I said. Um, and that's when I became a Christian. So the public profession, if it's tied to anything, is more tied to baptism, actually than to the prayer. Um, but it's not that that automatically saves you, just like we would hopefully say that a prayer doesn't save you either. Um, and even look at like Acts chapter 8, when the Ethiopian eunuch wants to be baptized. It's like, even if it's a later, it's a textual question here, I don't want to get into all that, but even if it's a later second century edition, let's say, 
um, it, it talks about what prevents me from being baptized. And if Philip says, if you believe, you may. And he says, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he's baptized. What he doesn't say is, um, you know, last September I prayed and I got saved. He's talking about his current faith. That's the stress at baptism, is the applicant's current faith in Christ in the gospel. Not so much the story of when it happened. That, that part's not very common, frankly, in the earliest Christian texts, actually. Um, and one thing to learn, maybe, is like Pastor Lance was stressing in our Sunday morning services, how the gospel isn't just for 30 seconds of our lives. The gospel is something that we continue to look to, even as believers, and we continue to have our focus upon Christ as he's presented in the gospel. So, It's not to say that there aren't any early Christians that we know their conversion experience. I'm not trying to overstate the case. Like Augustine, when we get to him, we can directly tell you how that happened. Patrick, uh, I could tell you how that happened, etc. I kind of shared the story of um, Justin Martyr last week, I think. So, Other questions or thoughts about all that? Any other questions? Okay, let me look through my notes. Um, yeah, let's see here. I think I discussed... Oh, one other kind of curious thing at early worship services is that the catechumenates would have been dismissed before the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is probably every Sunday. So it's kind of like, okay, here, they're called hearers, and catechumens. Hearers were those who hadn't made a profession of faith yet, but they're interested. Catechumens have made a profession of faith, they're getting trained. Both of them would be dismissed prior to the Lord's Supper. In fact, the word mass comes from the Latin dismiss, so you dismiss them. You kind of see it's not exactly like what a, a, a modern church growth tactic of trying to include people as fully as possible. It's actually more of like, nope, you don't get the Lord's Supper yet. Thanks for coming. Thanks for hearing the preaching of the word. See you next week. It's kind of a curious thing. Um, that doesn't often quite uh, mesh with how we would do things, per se. Um, but that's the way that it would happen in the second, third centuries. Anything else? All right. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to uh, our next slide set. So we're going to switch gears, and uh, Pastor Lance is going to help us with the next slide set, which is, we've got 20 minutes. <laughs> We'll see how far we get with this one. History of I actually put the title at the top this time. I'm learning from my mistakes from the past. So lesson four, imperial Christianity. I don't know what you think when you think of imperial. Maybe a song comes to mind. Like, dun, dun, da, dun, dun, da, dun. Um, that's really not what's talking about here. The word imperial relates to the emperors, so the Roman emperors, what's happening here. Um, and so we start off with, let's see here. Oops, where's my... Am I going the wrong way? Is it not? There we go. Okay. So uh, one thing I could kind of look at really quickly is catacomb art. This is like a pop quiz. We haven't done this before yet, have we? All right. There's entire books in early Christian art. So I just kind of got some copies off the web here. What's that a picture of, do you think? It's sort of one of the harder ones, actually. It is a fish. Five loaves and two fish. Yep. Five loaves and two fish. It's one of the earliest examples we have of early art. When it looks, looks, looks to me like half-sliced bananas, but uh, those are actually the five loaves and the two fish down below. 
This is a, a biblical account, and this would make Ken Ham not happy. It is Noah in the ark, yes. So it's kind of like his box-looking ark. You got the waves down below. You got a little window in the ark. And then you have the bird alighting upon Noah with the branch. So really no sense of spatiality tied to the Old Testament account of what the ark looked like in comparison to the size of Noah, uh, much less the animals. But that's pretty simple early Christian art. Uh, There's another Old Testament account. Yeah, the three young men in the fiery furnace. It's fascinating that it looks like they're trying to present them looking Persian-like. I say that because the headgear they have is is more traditional Persian headgear. And I don't know if you can see it. Um, Back in the back, there is a slight shadowy figure. It almost looks like a bird-like or angelic being. And so the uh, art historians wonder if that's actually was before it faded away. And then one like the Son of God was in their midst in that whole account. That's kind of fascinating. Uh, this is an account from the New Testament. Any, any guesses on this one? The woman touching the hem of Jesus' uh, robe, right? So that's interesting. Uh, this is a parable. This would be the Good Shepherd. In fact, the Good Shepherd is one of the most common pictures in early Christian art. Um, it's interesting, I think, because it resonates far more with them than us. We don't see a lot of sheep farming and shepherding today, but it definitely resonates with them. And we can also, by the way, tell that they haven't bred modern sheep (laughs) with the size and the looks of the sheep back then. Uh, This is the uh, Oran's picture I mentioned, a woman praying with a head covering on. So this appears to be what event? So probably actually this is more the Lord's Supper and the Last Supper in that it looks like there's a very young person here. Um... That appears to me to be female, male, male, very young, male, female, I think. But you could correct me on some of those. There are a couple of names that are tied in the background there, but it appears to be a celebration. It's a reminder that they don't sit around a modern Western table on chairs as they celebrate. Here is probably the Last Supper. In this case, it looks like they're all males and kind of equally drawn, right? Like the apostles and they're sharing... So most likely that's a picture of the Last Supper. Here too, though, it's not Leonardo da Vinci with people behind chairs sitting at a table because that wouldn't have happened in the ancient world. So here's another example, Lord's Supper. And I say that because it looks to me like there's both females and males. And that would be you know, contemporary to the artwork, not to the 12 disciples. And then uh, I had a bridge tonight, but I don't know if I want to spend much time on the bridge because we're going to bridge into imperial Christianity. And so the idea was like things start changing so I was going to have you see if you could find six changes between the top picture and the bottom picture. And it's Valentine's Day. By the way, Valentine's is named after an early Christian martyr, St. Valentine, who is said to assist Christians who want to get married even during persecution times. So he became like the patron of Christian romantic couples. And, of course, uh, in tradition, in other circles, he's called St. Valentine's. I think you all realize, in a biblical sense, every believer is a saint, um, and only true believers are saints um, in biblical theology. But in other systems, uh, saints are like elevated people beyond the average person, average Christian. Well, can you th- see any differences between those? All right, so one is the bow and the dog's hair. That's uh, gone. Good, that's one. The, the big dog has, yeah, his tongue out. That's two. So the white cat's turn and the tail over there is something 
Yeah, something's changed. Flips. That's three. Three arts. Four. Number of feet. Five in the bigger brown dog, and the six of the tails gone. So if you didn't catch all that, those are your six solutions. That's the change that's happening. And I was going to use it as a bridge, like what happens to Christianity when it becomes the state official religion? So things start changing, right? Good, bad, indifferent, what's happening? You can think about that. In historical studies, it's called the Constantinian turn. So that's tied to Constantine uh, professing himself to be a Christian and then trying to make the whole Roman Empire be more amenable to Christianity. So that's kind of where we're headed. So first of all, you back up prior to Constantine. There's a guy named Diocletian. There's a picture of him there. We've already mentioned his name because he's the one who does the great persecution. But prior to being the great persecutor, he was an amazing um, political leader. And it's a reminder that someone can be very gifted politically, even economically and militarily, and be a persecutor of Christians in the rubric of the Roman Empire, right? I mean, he's a traditionalist, which for him means anti-Christianity, which is a new, new upstart religion. He's a traditionalist. He wants to um, increase the strength of the Roman army. He wants to um, kind of reform the Roman Empire. One of the things he does is he divides the Roman Empire into four parts. It's called the Tetrarchy. If you don't know what that means, it just means rule of four, tetra, four, archi rule. Um, you can see the yellow up in Britain, France. That's one ruler, the kind of aqua blue, the rest of the west and the south, Italy, Spain, North Africa. A little bit hard to tell this between the darker purple and the lavender purple, but the darker purple would be the southeast Europe, so the Balkans and Greece and Macedonia, that area, uh, Bulgaria. And then uh, the far west, the lavender would be Egypt and then up through Israel, uh, but they would call that Palestine, and then uh, modern-day Iraq and Turkey. He divides it four ways. And the way it was supposed to work was that you have Augustus at the top in the west and Augustus at the top in the east, like the head honcho. And then underneath you have your assistant called the Caesar. So a Caesar in the west, a Caesar in the east. So if you're thinking, I, I think visually. So here in the west, you have the A. Augustus, the C. Caesar. In the east, you have A. Augustus, C. Caesar. And what he's trying to do is avoid um, civil war. Because what was happening in the Roman Empire is every time an emperor died, war breaks out. And all the generals want to be the next emperor and march on Rome. And there's, they're expending Roman lives on internecine civil war rather than spending Roman lives against the enemies. So he doesn't like that, and most Romans don't like that. So his idea is let's, let's make it more, like we would say, more constitutional in a way almost. And have a format. So what happens is the Augustuses are to retire... So the Augustuses retire voluntarily. The Caesars step up, become the new Augustuses, and name a new Caesar, and just constantly rotate. It's one of those things that looks great on paper. (laughs) But knowing your theology when you come to history class, you know that humans are fallen sinful beings who are selfish, and they're not necessarily going to give up power just because the previous emperor said, you got to do it and rotate out. Um, But he does it. He's actually the Augustus in the east. He steps down. He names the next Caesar to be the next Augustus. And then it starts falling apart already, pretty quickly. And they come to him, and he's up in modern-day Southeast Asia, the Balkan area. And they come to him and like, Diocletian, things are falling apart. Come back. We need your help. You were an amazing emperor. And his response was, if you could see the cabbages I'm growing, you wouldn't ask me to be emperor again. 
what he's getting at is, I, I did what I was supposed to do. I set you guys up for success, and you're failing. You're not doing what I told you to do, and you should have been rotating out with emperors like I had planned to do it. But, of course, it didn't work out well. And it's in that context that, first of all, you have the great persecution. And we mentioned that the great persecution is empire-wide to a degree, and it's lasting for uh, a number of years, for about 303 to 312 or so. So how we had talked about earlier in this uh, series, how most Roman persecution was local and sporadic. So just keep thinking that, local, sporadic, local, sporadic. Um, Christians tend to overplay what they think about persecution in the Roman Empire. They tend to make it sound like it's all the time, everywhere, constantly in threat of death. It's not true historically. For the most part, um, it just kind of you know, jumps out for a while and dies down and comes up over here. And there's various locations around the world today, by the way, that's very similar, whether it's China or India, etc. that something breaks out, you have a couple churches burned, or sometimes more than a couple. I just heard a stat this morning, secondhand, but uh, there's 240 churches burned in India, a region of India in the last year or so. Um, so I haven't you know, verified that. But, um, and you have pastors being imprisoned, etc., but usually it's local and sporadic. The great persecution, though, is very much top-down. It's the emperor, so Diocletian and his four, you know, four rulers here, that whole system. In fact, he himself was not really the mastermind of it all. It was more the Caesar in the east who becomes the Augustus in the east, that guy, Galerius, who's the primary master planner behind it all. I had mentioned that what really irked him at the beginning was that Something happened with the military, and they thought the gods were judging the military, and they found out there were Christians in the military who didn't worship the pagan gods and the emperor. And like, that's the problem. Like, the gods are mad because they're Christians, so let's, let's start to clamp down the Christians. That was the beginning of it. And then it spreads. <clears throat> Fascinatingly, though, Galerius ends up getting really sick. He's on his deathbed. And if you're thinking like a pagan... If you're thinking kind of superstitiously, what do you think Galerius thinks as he's really sick, having been the persecutor of Christians? It's like, oops, I made a god mad. Now, he's not thinking monotheistically necessarily. He's not thinking like, I made the one and only true god mad, and all the rest of the gods are really not gods. But he is willing to think, well, maybe that is a god, and he's mad, and now he's punishing me. And so he writes a letter to people like, hey, let's, let's quit this whole persecution thing <laughs> um, and let's let people worship like they want to. Pretty quickly around that time, out in the west, remember that happens in the east, so let's go back up here for a moment. If you go out in the west, there was um, an upstart general named Constantine and his father was one of these rulers out in the west. And what should have happened when his father died was the whole... I'm calling it constitutional. You realize that's an analogical play on words. They don't have a constitution. But this whole idea of how it should have happened. So then you move people up, replace them. Well, Constantine's troops didn't want to do that. And they're not going to wait for that. So even though his father died, and he's way up north at the time, his troops are like, let's proclaim him (laughs) to be the next ruler. And so they do. And so then Constantine is proclaimed by his own troops to be the ruler Way up northwest, he starts marching across what we have the Alps, which is a famous area for lots of military people to navigate. And he's going to come down into Italy, and just outside of Rome, there's a bridge. 
and it's called the Milvian Bridge. And according to the records, the night before he fights the battle at the Milvian Bridge, he sees something that he considers to be uh, the sign of Christianity. And there are, there are two thoughts here. One is that he sees something cross-like, so you know, pretty simple. In fact, some people think he sees a sundog. If you're trying to explain it naturalistically, you know what a sundog is? We had one a couple weeks. It was amazing. Like The sunlight looked like a cross out in the sky with um, rays going vertically and horizontally. Some people think the sign of the cross, though, is the key row symbol. That's going to be a little bit harder to explain naturalistically up in the sky, though, right? I mean, the, the key row symbol is a Christian symbol. The first two letters are Christos, so the name for Christ. And it very much does become a Christian symbol at the time period. Um, but that may be a little bit too complicated. The other uh, difficulty is, is he talking about a vision or a dream? Meaning, does he think when he's sleeping at night, he sees something in his dream? And then he's like, oh! That's what I need to do. I need to go to that God and that symbol. Or is it like a vision that would be like, you know, the sun dog or something else? If you're really, like, skeptical, you would say maybe it just makes the whole thing up. I mean, there's another option. Like, he's just trying to adapt Christianity and try to use it to unite the empire, and he's just using Christianity. Most historians don't go that far. Reason being because Christians are about 10 to 15 percent of the population, and if your idea of uniting the empire and getting everyone on the same page is to reach out for a very small minority religion as a unifying factor, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So most people think he really, in his mind, saw something that he took in his own superstitious way, maybe, as a sign, as a divine sign. So he gets up in the morning and he asks his troops to put whatever the sign is on their banners and on their shields, on all their military paraphernalia. So let's just make it easy and say it's the cross. So put the cross on your shields and your banners. March off into the Milvian Bridge and he wins. And so he's like, this is cool. I used the Christian symbol. I won. This is awesome. And so the Christian God is where it's at. And so... Um, I'm going to align myself with Christianity. That's the simplicity of the story. The difficult of the story, and maybe something we can never answer, is uh, the depth and or even reality of his conversion. Because um, there's lots of stuff that doesn't match up well. So, he, for example, he has a couple of his own sons killed. He continues to put the sun god on the coinage of the Roman Empire, not, not the Christian. Well, you can't really have the Christian god in coins anyway because he's not you know, a, a bodily being. But he puts the sun god on the coin still. Um, he says, I want to be baptized right before I die because of very, what I would call a realistic view of baptism. He thinks it washes away sin. And so it's kind of like, well, you know, that's, why would I do that now? Because I'm going to sin some more. So let's hold off, do it later, wash it all away right before I die. And when he has it finally happen, he actually has an Arian, which is a heretical uh, pastor, does the baptism for him. So there's just some stuff that doesn't match up well. If you go back to the early 1600s, anyone heard the name of Roger Williams? So he was a Baptist for a while, a strong believer in religious liberty here in the U.S. Um, He started uh, Rhode Island as the colony. His famous line was that Constantine did more to harm the Christian church than all the persecuting emperors put together. And that's been a pretty consistent view among like Baptists and Baptistic-like people is that 
Overall, the Constantinian turn is not positive. Overall, it's negative. Um, you, you could discuss that. I, I think they're both positives and negatives. Um, so we've got five minutes, so we, we can just use this as our discussion point here. So what would be some things, if you were a Christian at the time, that you thought, yeah, this is good? I mean, the obvious one would be what? Lack of persecution. I mean, you even have stories of these bishops gathering at a conference that he summons, um, and they're coming, and some of them missing eyes or missing limbs from the previous persecution, and they're you know, convening to be wined and dined by the emperor himself, and to them, like, this is amazing. Like, we used to be persecuted, now look at us. We're hanging out with the emperor himself, and they thought that was really neat. And you could see why. I mean, if I were persecuted and have some missing appendages, I would probably think this is a really cool turn, too, at the time. Some other positives might be that um, the emperor doesn't, the empire doesn't have to spend money on persecuting people. It's kind of a, you know, is that the wisest use of resources at the time? Um, Constantine declares that 50 new copies of the Bible should be copied and published at the empire's expense. So lots of people liked that. Um, remember how uncommon it is to have a copy of the Bible. It's very expensive to do that. His thinking is, because I burn, well, we, emperors, burn copies, so we're just replacing what we burned, is his thinking. They're not trying to elevate Christianity, per se. He also helps to build some churches with um, imperial funds there, too. He's saying, it's not because I'm trying to elevate Christianity, but everyone else, I'm just trying to make it even playing field. Like, we burned your churches, let's replace your churches, in his mind. In fact, if you look at the document, of 312, 313. It's called the Edict of Milan, probably misnamed. But Milan's a city up in northern Italy, and it basically does not say, I'm going to elevate Christianity to be the highest religion in the empire. Everyone should become a Christian. I think a lot of us think that's what he's doing, but it's not what the document says. The document actually says everyone has freedom to believe as they see fit, um, and everyone should worship freely by their own conscience, and it includes Christians. So he's not trying to elevate Christians above all others. Pretty quickly, though, as Christianity gets tied to the empire, everything turns. And the emperors start persecuting Jews and pagans. The rule of thumb is that religious liberty is the cry of the underdog. Some of you have lived long enough that you realize that suddenly now you watch certain news stations, you listen to pastors, they talk about religious liberty a lot, and 50 years ago they never talked about it. Right? Because it's the cry of the underdog. It's the underdogs who want liberty. And sometimes Christians kind of turn the other way if other minority groups don't get religious liberty. And it brings up questions like is it principled? Is it really what you believe? Or is it just like it helps me? And so selfishly, I like to talk about it now that I'm a suppressed group. It's an interesting question. Traditionally, Baptists believe strongly in a principled view of religious liberty even for people who strongly have bad views about religion. Um, so if you look at 1600s Baptist documents, they believed in voluntary religion. That is, it has to be freely chosen. That's the foundation of why they disagree with infant baptism, because it's not chosen by the infant. It's why they believed that the state should not enforce a belief. It's because it's not voluntarily chosen. And it's a different view than the secularist view of separation of church and state and Voluntary religion. Because a secularist is like, well, let's not fight about religion. I mean, just think John Lennon singing Imagine or something like. It's like, imagine there's a world without religion and we don't go kill each other. That's amazing, right? That's not the Baptist view. The Baptist view is religion is so important 
religious belief is so important. You want it to be real. And so their view was if you put a sword to someone's throat and said, become a Christian or else, it leads to hypocrisy. It leads to people saying, okay, I'm a Christian. Yeah, yeah, got it. Christian, right? But it's not real. And so they want it to be from the heart, as it were, uh, through God's work. And so that's why they want religious liberty. And so from this time period all the way to the 1600s, when Williams starts Rhode Island and Penn starts Pennsylvania, there's very little religious freedom in the West um, anywhere from this time period up until the 1600s. All right, um, so let's see here. Let's close with what are some bad things that happened with the Constantinian turn? We talk about some good stuff, like persecution ends. Get new Bibles, get new churches. Could it be any negative sides? Yeah, um, if, if, if Christianity is like what the cool thing to do, like it's the cool kids club, then do you get people who have a lot of baggage at best or maybe don't even believe it at worst, but they say they believe it because they want to get in into like the insider uh, power group, right? And so does it lead to hypocrisy? I mean, does it lead to people being hypocritical um, in their faith or their professed faith? So that could be a very negative side to that. Um, any other negatives you can think of with the Constantinian turn? And that's the interesting thing about statistics and postmodernism or post-Christianity in the U.S. Definitely the growing group is the nuns, the non-religious. But most of the transition isn't from professing evangelicals moving to nuns. That is happening, too. But they're pretty much holding even, like you're getting enough converts to cover. It's actually hap- happening in more mainline liberal denominations are the ones greatly shrinking in the U.S. It's like plummeting. And you wonder, is that really a bad thing, actually? <laughs> because you have nominal Christians who aren't really Christians. And when it comes to the end of the day, it's like, well, Christianity doesn't help me up my business anymore. It doesn't make me you know, well-respected in my community. Then I'm just going to leave it. You know, it brings up questions about the, um, the depth and reality of their Christian belief. So those, that's actually what I was going to close with today was a poem. Um, it's a poem from Isaac Watts, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his name or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me unto God? Since I must fight if I would reign, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by your word, by thy word. I don't have the full answer to that. Um, Scott, I do wonder, like on the one hand, I don't think we have to pray for persecution necessarily. On the other hand, if God sovereignly allows it, are there good facets to things we don't like happening? Um, In the end, I think we probably leave all that in God's hands and his providence. Uh, We're neither like, oh, I I want this to happen, nor am I like, I'm going to fight it no matter what. I, I tend to think Christians start compromising more and more if the whole purpose is not to be marginalized as Christians in your society. You start doing things that 30, 40 years ago you would have said to other people, that's, that's not right, 
but you turn a blind eye to people who you think are supporting you, um, but in compromising ways. And I think that's something to be really careful of, uh, personally speaking, my opinion about that. So, all right. Uh, the good place to end. Um, it's a good application at the end uh, to be willing to suffer, even if we're not necessarily suffering at the time. Philippians chapter 1 um, says that he has chosen us for belief, but also uh, to suffer for his sake. And pastoral say that Christians will suffer. It could be very small ways, right? Just a laugh or a sneer or making fun of, but small ways that we should be willing to face that this week. Let's go ahead and break up in our groups for prayer, though. Thanks for your time this evening. We'll come back next week with part five. Thanks for listening. For more resources, visit our website, mbcgrimes.org. May the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and to God be the glory.